This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So this is Memorial Day weekend, and we are honoring those in the armed services who have sacrificed their lives for peace, presumably for peace. And I like to think of this holiday as also a holiday for the armed services. And I know, I know a being who has a thousand arms and each of those arms is in service. Every hand has an eye in it to see the suffering of the world. And every hand has a tool, a skillful means to help relieve that suffering. It's not a weapon, but it's a skillful means. And so with you today, I'd like just to bring to our awareness the fact that the Bodhisattva of Compassion is to be honored as a member of the armed services. And I think that we can all, having many of us having taken the Bodhisattva vow, have dedicated our lives to being in the armed services. And I wish I could hug everybody, <laughs> which is one way to, um, to have your arms in service we'll have to settle for virtual. We chanted the Loving Kindness Sutra. And I've always been quite moved by the wish for all all beings to be happy. It's so simple. May all beings be happy. And it seems so obvious that what we want is to be happy. But lately I've been putting a little bit more attention to that obvious wish. And it has occurred to me that sometimes we actually don't want to be happy. I recently read an article in the Atlantic magazine, which was entitled, The Fellowship of Suffering. That struck me as quite curious, that the article focused on a woman who, for the most part, could be described as a kind of reclusive, um, grumpy um, person. But as soon as there was a need to participate in misery, she came alive (laughs) and became transformed into someone who was vital, 
who was participating, who was volunteering for things, who engaged in life in a way that she hadn't before. As soon as the suffering had abated, this woman retreated into her old patterns of with withdrawal and um, loneliness and grumpiness. I guess another way of saying the fellowship of suffering is the old phrase, misery loves company. <laughs> and that somehow we find community in our misery. A Sangha member here at Owan also described an experience he had breaking his glasses, his favorite glasses, and noticed that he did not have the same kind of distress that he usually had when he lost something of value to him, that he had a kind of equanimity about it. Oh, you know, I broke my favorite glasses. Well, I'll just choose another pair. And he was quite surprised that, and he attributed this to his practice, that he had, he didn't have that kind of reactivity to this unfortunate event. But what followed was even more curious. And that was, he missed that feeling of distress. And he said he actually grieved <laughs> for the loss of this feeling that something was missing in his reactions. He recognized that the, that sense of equanimity was welcomed, but he also missed his normal ways of reacting. Found that very curious. When you think of, for example, people who for health reasons need to lose weight and they go on diets and they do manage to lose a good deal of weight and they are healthier but they're not necessarily happier and they often describe this as not feeling themselves so they put the weight back on knowing that it it will bring suffering <laughs> but somehow it feels like them. <laughs> so we might be able to say that our suffering defines us in some way, in a strange way. We become attached to our suffering. That's a curious thing, isn't it? Because we all ostensibly want to be liberated from suffering. 
when you look further into the matter, you, you see perhaps that living a life of suffering is much more interesting. If you look in the Buddhist canon, there are 108, at least, kleshas, afflictions. But there are only 10 paramitas. If you ask someone how they're feeling, they may say, well, I'm feeling fine. But there isn't much more to say about that. You don't hear people speak, for example, about, well, I just heard the whippoorwill sing, and this has given me such a, a great feeling of, of beauty. Or I just saw an amazing sunset. Or a feeling of love has just overcome me. And it's, you don't hear that very much, but if you ask someone, can you tell me about your problems? Uh, there's a torrent of ways to express your suffering. And it, it is, uh, our suffering is much more fleshed out than our happiness. There's much more to say about it and much more to identify with. Not very much language connected with happiness. And we've spent a good part of our lives constructing the suffering self. In fact, the suffering self is the self. <laughs> is the self. There is the happy self is selfless. Right? So without suffering, we don't have a self. And we kind of are attached to ourselves. We've spent a lifetime almost constructing this suffering self. And it's hard to let go of it because we've invested so much time and effort and energy into it. It reminds me of having grown up in a very poor family and only having tasted canned peas mostly canned vegetables, but really never had enough money to purchase fresh produce. And all I knew were canned peas. And one summer, we ventured up into the Catskill Mountains in New York and passed a farm stand and there it was, a beautiful pint of fresh peas, which were unrecognizable to me. <laughs> and the farmer said, you know, you really need to taste these. These are, these are really special. 
No. <laughs> they don't look like any pea that I ever saw. And for a long time, I resisted tasting fresh peas. Until one day, I had the courage to taste a fresh pea. And I've never gone back to canned vegetables. Sometimes if we taste what it feels like to be genuinely happy, we can let go of our loyalty to our suffering self. We're very loyal to that self that we have created and resist resist anything that doesn't feel like that and true happiness does not feel like that it feels selfless and so when we are suffering we get a lot of attention our, our self gets buoyed. We, we get a benefit from that constructed self. We, we get more and more self-centered because suffering moves us into our separateness. Oh, I'm, so, I'm suffering, everybody else looks happy. I sometimes wheel my cart in the around the supermarket and I'm in pain of some sort and I look at everyone else wheeling their their carts around and I think oh those people look so happy and I'm in such pain and I'm in such suffering and despair it allows us to become more and more self-centered to the point where we can even become martyrs to our suffering. And how many times have we heard, particularly in toxic relationships, when the possibility of happiness by dissolving that relationship is refused? I'm, a, I'm going to become a martyr to the children. I'm going to become a martyr to the institu institution of marriage. I'm going to suffer through this. And so we get a lot of brownie points <laughs> for becoming a martyr and enduring our suffering. And we get really attached to that. You all know the story of the poisoned arrow of the man who is shot with a poison arrow and falls to the ground. <clears throat> He's in pain, suffering. And a crowd gathers around him and someone is could be the Buddha. 
about to pull that arrow out of the man's chest. Relieve his suffering. Keep him from dying. And the man says, wait. Uh, who shot me? What was his motive? Where did he come from? Was this a wooden arrow? Or was it a, an iron arrow? What was the poison, the chemical makeup of the poison at the tip of this arrow? You get, you get the picture. No, I refuse to let this arrow simply be pulled out. <clears throat> and that is what is called the second arrow. The narrative that we develop to actually keep us from being liberated. Sometimes spoken of as the head we place on top of the head that we already have. Could it be that we are actually afraid of being happy? Is that the deepest form of suffering? So what do we, what, what is it that we can do to help us understand that it's okay to let go of this suffering self and embrace this self that doesn't have any dramas, <laughs> doesn't have any um, narratives to offer. Just being what Rinzai called a true person of no rank. Just an ordinary person who's content and doesn't have this big narrative around them. It's okay to be happy in that way. What do we have to do? Well, certainly have, being a Dharma teacher, I would say practice, <laughs> practice, practice, practice. Coming to see how you suffer and why you suffer and tasting more and more deeply what happiness is. So that's one way, certainly. But you know, another way is that we just have to suffer enough. One might say that the Buddha hit bottom. Sometimes we have to hit bottom to let go 
of that constructed self. We have to suffer so much that we reach out for the truth of our nature. And he hit bottom, he was on the verge of death and he responded to an act of kindness. And it was on the basis of that act that he was able to see the truth of who he was and to become happy and to teach other people how to be happy. But it, it, it's not, it's simple, but it's not easy because we have to go through, sometimes we have to go through this hitting bottom before we've suffered enough to realize there's no point in suffering. All it does is um, radiate out further and further until we reach a breaking point. <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'd like just to end with the words of um, Willie Mandela, who was released from prison, unjustifiably, of course, for many decades. And when he was finally released, he was interviewed and asked if he had forgiven his captors. How could he possibly have uh, not held resentment, anger, even rage? How was he feeling about those who imprisoned him? And he said he had, he had completely, genuinely forgiven them. And his interviewer asked, how, how could you do that? That's unbelievable that after all this injustice and all your personal suffering, you could come out clean. And he said, if I didn't forgive them genuinely, I would still be in prison. So I invite all of us to be brave enough to leave prison. The door is open. Don't sit in the corner of your cell. Have courage. Don't wait till you suffered too much. So I welcome um, comments, observations, experiences, questions. 
I would love to hear from all of you if possible. Hi, uh, thank you for this. Thank you for this talk. Uh, it's just a talk exactly I needed to to hear. Um, I have one question for you. Is your name, does your name mean light way? Miodo, like the light way, L-I-G-H-T way? Um, as I understand it from my guiding teacher, and Michael, you can correct me, um, it means a luminous earth. The Do is earth. Uh, so luminous earth, bright ground, something like that. And, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, last week, last week, I think after the talk, Michael's talk, uh, there was a chat group and I remember saying, uh, sorry, I, I, sorry, I remember saying, uh, you know, this teaching to not waste your life always, always like bugs me <laughs> because I've, I've spent a lot of time wasting my life and like, what am I supposed to do with my life? But, uh, uh, I was, uh, afterwards, you know, just, just yesterday morning, uh, we had to put our dog to sleep. Um, it was very peaceful, but after that, um, it came to me that wasting your life is like not finding joy in your life. So it's amazing that you gave this talk. Uh, so the purpose of life came to me like as finding joy in life, in the little things in life. And uh, I come from a place where uh, ancestrally there was there has always been uh, maybe I'm wrong but uh, um, there has been a lot of emphasis on suffering action because of the history of the country and all the invasions and uh, so I've been confused about that uh, I think you're exactly right. It takes a lot of courage to find joy in little things in life. So thank you for this talk. I'm so glad I'm so glad it was helpful. And and just just a reminder that you are not separate from your larger story of your country. You're not separate from that. You carry that within you. So it's, it's a big job. Uh, actually, I saw that that's my mission in life. To reverse that in this lifetime for this one person.
Um, I have a question. Uh, so, um, so we we talked about uh, giving uh, people who have caused us <clears throat> pain or suffering, so that we can get out of the prison. And we uh, talked about that story. Uh, how to? So my question is how to how to truly forgive somebody because I see that we might we might want to get out of that prison and maybe that's why we are trying to forgive them. So how to truly forgive them without wanting to be in that prison or without wanting to suffer? Um, in a way, this is where practice comes in, because when you see deeply into our nature and ourselves, we understand that forgiveness depends upon blame. Mm -hmm. And if we if, if we can genuinely understand, and I don't just mean with the brain, not with the brain, but within our bones, <laughs> that there is no one to blame, then there is no one to forgive. But we have to understand that in our bones, not just in our brains. So practice deeply and you'll discover that there is no one, there's no, no, there's a story of the rowboat um, where a fellow is, always seems to be a fellow for some reason, <laughs> who's rowing the boat in a very foggy, misty lake. And he sees through the mist, very dimly, another boat coming toward him. And he notices his muscles are already starting to tense up because it looks like someone is, is about to bump into his boat. The mist starts to clear a little more. And he's sure enough that boat is coming directly toward his boat. The mist clears even further. And indeed, the other boat bumps in to his, but he discovers that there's no one in the boat. It's just drifting and happens given causes and conditions to have bumped into his. So immediately all that anger and all that tension melts away. No one to blame here. Causes and conditions one is accountable for one's actions, but isn't to blame because there's no self there. It's causes and conditions that are constantly changing, making actions, making reactions, making this self, making that self. That self who you want to forgive doesn't exist. And let's say it does, it's different now from what it was, inevitably. It's a construction. 
So there is no self to blame and there is no self to forgive. That's something you're going to have to come to terms with yourself. Yourself. Uh, and a follow-up question, like, like what if, um, what if you think, what if you see that uh, the road to get out of the prison is not, uh, not forgiveness, but something else? As an example, like if somebody somebody deceives you and uh, steals something which which was yours, and and you can either forgive them or take that thing back that they took from you. So um, so in that case, like if you're trying to forgive them, maybe um, maybe you can just get out of the prison by taking something that was yours and 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 close that matter. So what do you think about that? I wish there was a general rule <laughs> for all circumstances, but there isn't. Um, and you're going to have to pay attention, really pay attention to that particular situation. I like to say that our precepts are not general rules, but they're struggles with the exquisite specificity of life. Exquisite specificity of life. There's no general rule. But what I would offer you, generally speaking, is that I would ask the question, what do you mean by yours? In the same way, that I would ask, what do you mean by blame or self uh, or being hurt? Um, do we own anything? <laughs> In order to own something, we have to be a self. And it has to be mine. You know, the Beatles, I'm me mine. Um, but if, if there is no self to possess, Everything, what belongs to you? I'll never forget uh, driving home with my mother, my mother's ashes beside me in my car. And I looked over to the seat where she usually sat being critical <laughs> most of the time. And there she was, nothing. Has, did that change from the moment she was born? No. She was always nothing. She was always nothing. Nothing belonged to her. She had to, you know, it was, didn't belong to her. Even I didn't belong to her. So I would invite you to ask that question. What's mine? And what does it mean for somebody to take something that wasn't even mine to begin with. Everything we are is borrowed. Everything. These are borrowed. They have to all go back. They have to all be returned. So ask that question. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. Well, what I get from your from your talk, thank you very much, 
um, was that if we stop blaming, if we stop the suffering and stop blaming others, then we need to take responsibility for ourselves. Then, then all the, what is, what is the word for it? All the, um, everything we do then becomes our responsibility. And, um, that, that's, that's a little scary in some ways, you know, um, and not, and not be saying I didn't do this. I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do these other things because of my circumstances. But if, if you walk out of that prison, you, you call it, um, you know, cause the door's always open, then the whole world's open to you, you know, um, that's, I don't know if I call it happiness. I'd call it, you know, maybe exhilarating. It's, and it's kind of uh, like being on a roller coaster. You know, some of it's fun, but some of it, like, your stomach falls out. Because <laughs> what are you going to do, you know? Um, it's a very, very interesting concept. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. Chiro? For instance, um, the suffering self really is the self <clears throat> as opposed to the happy self. I've, I've never uh, seen, sensed that <clears throat> at all because um, I suppose when, when I've been happy, I've, I've felt I was identifying with the happiness. So that's still to be experimented, but it still gives me an <clears throat> appreciation that <clears throat> We seem to <clears throat> have a stronger sense of self <clears throat> when we are thinking with with our um, thoughts. Uh, I think when we suffer, it's it's uh, easy for us to identify and sort of reify things in our minds uh, quite in, intensely. And and when we are happy, I suspect uh, <clears throat> our thinking is less important or less precise, less intense. <clears throat> so I, I really uh, appreciate that um, way in a sense of sneaking into seeing um, this sense of self by, by appreciating or um, really observing our ways of suffering and the kind of clear thinking that comes with that. And then when we are happy or experiencing um, uh, happiness, uh, paying more attention to that as well and how that, how the, uh, the way the mind is working or responding to that happy feeling may be rather different from the intensity of thought that comes with suffering. So thank you. Yes, yeah, of course, in our practice, we don't, uh, we don't demean or reject thinking. We just want to put it in its place. Um, and uh, I would say that certainly discursive thinking has its place. Uh, but in the in the case of, of of our suffering, I suspect that it's the kind of thinking that makes up stories. 
not so much theoretical thinking uh, or metaphysical thinking or thinking that tries to solve a problem, but thinking that makes, makes stories up about who we are and why we, you know, why, why has our life has been the way it is and who, who has hurt us and who, you know, who we, we can work with and all of those stories that we, the narratives that we create. Um, uh, when, we're, when we're feeling happy, there isn't much to say. There's, we're just part of it. Yeah, Kathy? Can you unmute yourself? I think what Jerome said struck me as, I mean, I left to a, a different thought from that, which is that I think I completely lose track of space and time when I'm happy. Um, and just the idea that, and that's sort of like being in here and now, that there's no thought of self, there's no thought of time or of wasting time or of extending time. It's just here and nowness, and it's wonderful. So thank you, Jero, for that. I know that's not exactly what you said, but it made sense to me. Um, who would like to speak? Connie? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I, um, I kept thinking about um, my mother when you were talking, especially like the peace story, which I, I thought was really, really caught something for me. Um, so I was just brought up by my mom because my dad died when I was a, an infant. And, um, and she had a narcissistic mother who was, her father also died when she was like six. So, um, so she had a lot of suffering. She carried a lot of suffering. So she, not only when my, uh, when my father died, her narcissistic mother came all the way across the country from New York to California to ostensibly help her and then um and then two of her very close friends committed suicide and so um so i think um she was very determined not to be abusive in any way and to stop that you know that thing that she carried she didn't want to pass it on to her kids but but inevitably i soaked up a lot of it because i was just an infant and um and so there was this kind of a loyalty, you know, your loyalty to the peas. I had this loyalty to kind of protect my mom from, from pain. And so <laughs> it's just kind of strange, you know, like um, meditation, I think, gave me a lot of insight into what that was. But, um, but uh, the, the threads of our identity actually really are um, in that seed consciousness that um, 
that we can't see those a lot of these karmic seeds that um, that we just have to kind of work through in some sense. I think um, like uh, like you were talking about your mother being ashes, <laughs> and um, when my mother passed away, it was like the illumination actually of how I'd been repressing my own life to protect like her suffering. It just it was. I couldn't see it until she was gone, um, wow. at least fully. I couldn't really see that. And so that is part of this, um, this I think, karma that we just live through. And um, practice for me in a lot of senses has just been able, has just been a way for me to actually go into that suffering and meet it and um, open my heart to it and um, and um, maybe not necessarily I, I think you know that um, I guess yeah me, meeting life is kind of releasing you know it, it, it kind of releases us in a way but I think what I'm trying to say is that uh, the happiness is just, maybe it's just a, a byproduct and not necessarily the goal. <laughs> if, if, if you would comment on that, Barbara, um, that, your thoughts are on that. Uh, well, we do, we do wish for all beings to be happy. What we mean by that maybe very much closer to saying um, may all beings be at ease um, that that may be uh, sometimes it's translated that way um, which may come closer to a core um, a core state of being than the happiness which is a byproduct of our practice um, because we're, we're dedicated as bodhisattvas to relieving suffering, dukkha, and helping all beings to be happy, which is sukha. But sukha is not happy in the byproduct sense. <laughs> it's happy in the core sense that many of us have been trying to express. Uh, but there aren't a lot of good words for it. But I, I also want to respond to what you've said about um, karma. Um, it's kind of tricky because I do think that we have a choice. We, we have a choice. If you take the metaphor of being in the prison cell, uh, you know, we're really comfortable there. We've spent... <laughs> I guess it's recidivism. We keep going back into our suffering because it feels so familiar and so right. So we're sitting there and in our prison cell and we see the door is open and our practice helps us to see that the door is open. There are no guards. There's no punishment. There's no key. There's no lock. <laughs> It's just open. And we can, we do have the choice of getting up out of that corner and walking out. 
Um, but the effort involved, it's, it's almost, it's definitely, uh, it seems to be almost muscular that we have to will to do it. We have to, and this is probably what we call bodhicitta in our practice, to, to um, cultivate that will to move towards sukha and be brave enough to have the courage. That's why often we speak about spiritual warriorship, which I always kind of didn't, wasn't attracted to uh, that militaristic approach. But as my practice unfolded, I realized that there is, the warrior is the courage, the, the courage to get up and taste the pea. <laughs> Whatever it is, it could be <laughs> I think there were some other comments or uh, Pamela yes i I appreciated your talk very much, and it's going to make me sound like I'm one of the people who's very attached to my suffering to say this, but when you said there's no point in suffering. I kind of choked because I thought, you know, suffering to me is a facet of um, joy or contentment. It's, it's not separate for me. Those things exist together. Um, I can't tease them apart, kind of. Not to say that I want to stay with the suffering or that I only want to be in the joy. It's just that they are facets of the same thing. For me, I don't think I... Um, can be compassionate towards myself and my suffering. I can't get to the joyful release part without being compassionate and kind of um, embracing my suffering. Not like I want to stay in the suffering, um, which I understand that point, but also that it's not separable from the joy and contentment. In my, you know, in my zazen experience, that's what happens as I, I see my suffering. I make friends with my suffering. I let my suffering go. I get, you know, a different experience of my reality. So for me, there really is a point in my suffering. It's just not the holding on piece. Does that make sense? So you've dodged the second arrow. Okay. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's suffering... Often you hear pain is, is inevitable, suffering is optional. It's that second arrow that we need to pay attention to. You're going to be in pain, the first noble truth. Um, but it's the second arrow that you need to pay attention to. Does that make sense? Yes. Randy? Yeah. Um do I need to push anything or? No, we hear you. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, one of the things, especially during this pandemic, um, and it has to do with my age and being older, is uh, the sense of mortality has has really um, surfaced at, at different times. And within that more mortality issue that we all have is that 
the narrative of, well, I haven't done this or I haven't done that, or I need to accomplish this. Or, and there's, um, and I can see in, in a certain way that I'm creating my own suffering and, oh, you should have done this. You know, why haven't you? It's sort of, I have this thing that I, all these kind of notions about myself that I should have um, <laughs> accomplished a lot more, done a lot more. It, 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 and, I, and I can see that uh, it's the ego that wants to be fed. And, and, and I can see through it at times, but still it, it comes on real strong at some times. And, and this morning, I was, it was pretty strong yesterday. And I was riding my bike around this morning and um, uh, before it gets warm here in the valley. And uh, I saw this little scrub jay, which is bouncing along this little driveway at somebody's house. It's sort of in a neighborhood. And... I all of a sudden identified with that scrub jay just for that brief moment. And I just said, well, he, he's just living. He's just bouncing around looking for, you know, the next thing is so in the moment. He was just hopping around. And, you know, and I, I um, and it's sort of like for a little bit, all that stuff just fell away that was in my head. And that identity with this little, well, they're not little, but, you know, scrub jays. So I don't know if you have them out east, but, uh, um, yeah, it was just sort of, but that, that's still that notion, I think, of, of what we're going through now, for me anyway, in my own sense of, uh, well, I'm, I'm in the last quarter, you know. I mean, um, it's, uh, it's not easy sometimes, uh, and sometimes I'm fine with it, it but it just bounces back and forth, back and forth. It's, and maybe it'll never be horizontal. <laughs> I don't think so. It hasn't been yet. So, so. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for that. Um, yeah, I think you've had a taste of it, and and it's when you were connected with that um, bird. You, you, you were out of yourself. Mm. You were out. Um, I had a similar experience. I live here in the woods in central Pennsylvania, and uh, it's very hilly, and I, I'm hiking all the time, and one of my greatest fears is getting lost because the terrain here is such that once you turn around 180 degrees, you don't know where you are unless you have a compass. Uh, but I didn't have a compass, and I realized that I had gotten off the path, and I could feel the adrenaline starting to pump and uh, the fear reaction starting. And then I looked down at the ground, and I saw this little chipmunk. It was just kind of jumping around and <laughs> burying things and climbing up this, and, and I thought to myself, he doesn't think he's lost. <laughs> he's <laughs> He's just there. <laughs> he's just, I mean, he's just being a chipmunk in the woods. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's this, these stories, um, you know, I should be, I should, what if I, you know, it's the story that we tell. I see myself as this kind of person. I haven't done this. 
Um, I've talked to Michael about this uh, too, with being an artist. Um, that you know that could I have done more? Could I have become famous? Could I have uh, right, right, right? You know, a larger body of work, and here I am as Zen priest. It's all it's all these what ifs, and it's and what if are these stories that we. (laughs) Yeah. And then once we get to the what if, and we do, we, we go, we jump into one of those scenarios. Once we're in that, we say, well, if only, (laughs) so it's, it's first it's what if, and then if only I did something different, Mm -hmm. what, so it's it's almost as if we are we're hungry for suffering. Mm. <laughs> we, it, it it feeds us. Uh, if with this pandemic, uh, people when I talk to people prior to the pandemic, it was always I have so much to do. I'm overwhelmed. My calendar, my book is blacked out, and now it's I have nothing to do. I'm suffering because I have nothing to do. It's, uh-huh. it's, this is dukkha. <laughs> this is exactly it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Who is that? Jen. Oh, Jen, hi. Hi. So um, I've also been thinking a lot about being sort of in that room that you mentioned and um, really sitting with my suffering. And even as the Bodhisattva vow, when we feel good and we feel happy and we are able to help other suffering beings, I'm wondering about that attachment to the suffering and, and sort of making ourselves feel better because somebody is because we're helping somebody that might be suffering worse than what we are at the moment or, or the things that we do have to be grateful for. And um, you mentioned sort of seeing the door. And as a the Bodhisattva vow is maybe not just seeing the door, it's maybe trying to help other people see the door. But I'm wondering, you know, what happens once we step through that door? You know, what's there? Because we we know what's behind us. We've seen it. We know it. You know, I mean, is it the fear of not knowing or not taking that step or leaving people behind? So that's my question for you. (laughs) That's a wonderful question. Of course, we don't know what's what's outside the door because we're so uh we've we've built our story around that little landscape in the door so one of the one of the ways that we actually do choose to suffer is the need to know the need to know everything to know what's coming next that's one of the reasons why we are so distressed about this pandemic because nobody knows Nobody knows anything about this. And this drives us insane. We ha- and you hear constantly, um, 
When are we gonna get a vaccine? When can we go back to school? When can we do this? When can we do that? We need to have that control and that's, that's the self who, which needs its story to be clear. <laughs> it, needs, it needs to be able to continue to tell the story with some certainty. And the uncertainty leaves us open to the fact that maybe there is no story. <laughs> you know, maybe we have to step in to the unknown. And that's where courage comes. But our practice helps us to stay present. So when the unknown presents itself in the present, which it always does, it's the only time the unknown appears, really, except as a fantasy in our minds, the unknown always appears in the present moment, the next thing. And our practice helps us to be able to meet that next thing with confidence, with courage, with compassion. So no, Jen, I mean, we, we don't know what's next. And, but we, do, we have taken a vow uh, to help all beings to be in service instead of to save all beings, to serve all beings as well. Uh, so to, to serve. And we've got to be careful. We, we need to be, to be self-aware and self-reflective when that whole bodhisattva vow becomes what Trungpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism. When somehow we want to add that bodhisattva too stressful, then there's something wrong, or I suffer, or I have to doesn't become part of that is beyond me. Thank you, Nido. Thank you very yes. much for this talk this morning and this discussion. Uh, we're going to conclude the formal part of it now. Connie and Nico may continue to host the Zoom meeting for uh, further interaction amongst the participants. Uh, so we'll now chant. May, May our intention equally extend to every being in place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Armageddon's are endless. I vow to end them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Thank you, Mado.
You're very welcome. It was my, my joy to be with you all. Hope to meet you all in person when air travel permits. You're welcome. Connie or Nico, would you uh, chime in here about your, your plan, the next um, follow-up? Hi, everybody. So, um, so we will stay uh, open, the Zoom meeting. This is a chance for people to ask questions or talk to each other and um, socialize a little before we end. Um, if you wanna talk, go ahead and unmute yourself and, um, and speak up. So I don't really care for it. And goodbye to all who waved goodbye. <laughs> Maybe are, are you going to stay in the chat? I have a follow-up question. Yes, I will. Okay, thank you. Um, I don't quite know. I don't quite know. Uh, I don't quite know how to how to even think of this. It's just a feeling, you know. Uh, uh, but I know, I know, it's a frequent, frequent feeling for me. Um, so, uh, I think maybe Pamela, Pamela talked about this also. Uh, maybe I might use different words, but uh, like. Uh, Joy and sadness are like so intertwined in some way. Uh, maybe because of impermanence of life and life being so precious, you know, that brings some sadness with it when you go through loss. At the same time, you know, you don't want to get stuck there because life is passing by uh, I can't quite explain it but it seems like our heart has the ability to, to kind of like unify this joy and, joy and sadness in some cases I have felt that in myself sometimes uh, not often but I've, and out of that, like a, you know, like a, you know, uh, a, um, a lot of clear space comes, you know, when that combination happens, a lot of clear space comes. Uh, I, I, I can't, I can't say it anymore. Uh, but I just wanted to know, and I can say something about it actually. Then what happens after that, there's, my mind comes in and kind of like makes a shrine out of that. 
And that seems like the ego coming in and characterizing stuff. But the initial release is just looking to vastness because of this, it's kind of like a nuclear explosion of joy and sadness, fusion of joy and sadness. I, I, I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense or if you can on, you know, unentangle it, untangle it, you know. So I'd like to offer you um, a little metaphor to consider. And that is um, being on a seesaw. Yeah. Ups and downs and ups and downs. The same seesaw. But our practice is to, to find the fulcrum. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To sit in the middle. Not necessarily linear, but to, to find that middle so that we, when the seesaw goes up, we feel it. When the seesaw goes down, we feel it. It's not like we're numb. It's not like these two things come together and become one thing. It's so- sorrow, it's joy, and we, we actually feel it, but we don't get pushed off. We are able, we call it equanimity. We're able to sit with that, be with those, knowing that the up is going to go down and the down is going to go up because we've practiced enough, we've lived enough to know this. It doesn't make us, as some people say, numb. Some people think Buddhists are numb. You know, nothing bothers them. That's not true, at least not from my point of view. It's that nothing, um, nothing uh, can push us around. <laughs> um, that we 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 experience everything as it is, but we don't make more of it than it is. We don't elaborate on it. We don't we don't go to that second arrow. We don't allow that to happen. We come back to our place in the middle. That's to me what the middle way is. It's not moderation, really. It's not, it's finding the center of things. Thank you. Yeah, Michael? Would that be, I like that you uh, said that the word happiness is not actually the way that's translates more, maybe all beings be at ease. Because I never trust that word happiness, especially American happiness. You know, I just, I find it uncomfortable, actually. But being at ease, it's like you're saying, it's like sitting in the middle of the, of the seesaw. Being at ease makes sense. You know, I mean, just intuitively, it makes sense. Happiness to me is just like, what does that mean? I, I don't really understand that word. And I like the fact that maybe it's not really translated as happiness, you know? Mm-hmm. Good. Well, um, it's almost getting on to one o'clock. Um, there's maybe one more comment or question. Who, who, who are you? Nico. I'm Nico. Nico here. Nico, I can't tell. I can't tell who you are. <laughs> no. um, 
Um, I like what you said about um, may all beings be at ease rather than happy. And it occurred to me perhaps uh, may all beings be at equilibrium. Mm. So it's it's more of a just a, a, a state of not stasis, but um, at ease. You know, another way of getting at at ease without putting on oneself the burden of being happy. <laughs> because um, it's more modest. It's, it's a little more, it's more modest for sure. Anyway, thank you for your talk, May. It was wonderful having you here. It's wonderful to be with everyone. Enjoy the rest of your day. Hope to see you all again soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.